Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Podcast. This is your host, Agnes, and my guest today is Vicky Kalpin. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for for joining us. Um, I'll just give a quick presentation of Professor Kalpin. And this is another special episode of the Work Life Podcast we're doing for Zukunft Personal, the HR Expo in Cologne in October, because... Uh, Vicky Kalpin is one of the keynote speakers on Thursday, the 20th of October, and we're going to be addressing a little bit her her latest research interest, which is sleep. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, just before that, a, a quick introduction. Um, Vicky is a member of the faculty at Ashridge Executive Education. She specializes in organizational behavior. Um, specifically well-being at work. She's a psychologist by education. She obtained her PhD from Lancaster University and, and her more recent research interest is in the relationship between sleep, well-being, resilience in managers and organizations. So great to have you, Vicky. Um, may I ask you just to start off to tell listeners a little bit how you got into this field and, and particularly your, your interest in researching sleep? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you so much for um, inviting me to be part of this. It's it's really exciting. Um, my career is is quite a sort of a long and and we I touched on various aspects of of research around psychological topics, but I started out um, just after I left university as an undergraduate, working in the field of how humans can tell time. And I don't mean by looking at your watch, but basically <laughs> how you can tell time when you don't have a way of judging it. So if I said to you, tell me when five seconds has gone or tell me when 10 seconds has gone and prevented you from counting it, how would you know when it's about five seconds or how would you know when it was about 10 seconds? And we do that basically by our circadian and biological rhythms. We have a kind of an internal clock and that's also the case in birds and that's related to how they know about seasons and migration and we have it in humans as well. And now that sounds like a, a bizarre way to start my research career. But what actually it means is that when I came to the sleep topic, which was probably about 15 years later, 
Um, sleep is absolutely circadian rhythms. It's biological rhythms. It's, it's, it's related to that really strongly. So although I started out life looking at something quite different, it was actually using the same physiological mechanisms as, as um, determined sleep. In the interim, between those two periods, I did my PhD in memory, uh, particularly short-term memory and how to improve memory. And then I worked for a time in the area of forensic psychology. I used to teach forensic psychology and research that. Uh, and that's um, psychology relating to the law. So witnesses, victims um, and perpetrators of crime and how psychology can help in that field. And during that time, I did a piece of research with a colleague of mine in a young offender institution in the United Kingdom. And these were with offenders who were relatively young, between the ages of sort of 15 and 21. And we were looking at how sleep, or in particular how poor sleep, really impacted these individuals. So these are individuals who were already, already quite vulnerable. Uh, they may already have been a little bit impulsive or a little bit aggressive. And what we were interested in is how that then showed up if they had poor sleep. Did it make them more aggressive? Did it make them more impulsive? And that's exactly what we found is that poor sleep was re related, quality of sleep and quantity of sleep was related to impulsivity and aggression in these people. And that's not really surprising if you think about how poor sleep makes us feel. We may get a little bit more moody, maybe a little bit more impulsive, maybe a little bit more aggressive uh, when we've had a few days of poor sleep. So that's not really surprising, but it was really interesting in that population. And that's how I really became interested in the topic of sleep. About nine years ago, I then moved uh, to Ashridge to an executive education environment. And it really struck me that this was a topic that was so pertinent to this this um, area of, the, of work. Um, it was at a time when we weren't really talking about sleep. I mean, what's really exciting is in the last two or three years, maybe the last five years, people are now really starting to talk about this as a topic. But back then, nine, ten years ago, it wasn't really being talked about. But I felt that it was really, really important. And the business impact impact of poor sleep was so significant for me that I then really started to try and research this in a very applied way. There's some fantastic research out there, but mainly in clinical or specific populations like doctors and pilots. What I wanted to know is how does this actually show up in business life? So for the last 10 years, I've been really trying to answer that question, focusing on particularly on, on individuals within organizations. Thank you so much for um, taking us through it. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and just made me think of, of course, of Ariana Huffington. Yes. I think uh, kind of exploded this, this idea into maybe more of the, the just, the, you know, mainstream interest of, of people with her own personal experience. And of course, she founded now this, this organization to, to address exactly this. But um, w would you say that um, within the context of work, talking about sleep is is still a bit of a taboo or or you know I, I just cannot really picture a lot of conversations between the managers and, and employees about how they slept or you know how it would affect work and, and behaviors so have you seen an evolution what is your your view um, now looking at organizations and 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 how this relates whether is there now um, an understanding or a recognition that this is important yeah I, I think you're absolutely right I mean it, it has definitely been an evolution and it's been a relatively slow process so if I think back to when I started around 10 years ago working with executives it was certainly taboo um, I may be invited occasionally to come and talk to a group of individuals and that would always be their first question to me was 
we really understand now we've listened to you this is a real issue but how do I actually start to talk about this in the organization is it my responsibility to do this or as am I overstepping the mark mm. into somebody's personal life and that you know that's a really difficult one to answer over the last years I think with the likes of people like Arianna Huffington but also with some very high profile quite sad cases of very high profile individuals having burnout having to step step away from or indeed step down from um, very senior positions because they're exhausted because they they uh, have a a mental health condition and they're, they're being very open about it which is absolutely fantastic I think then these things are starting to be talked about more within organizational life there's then if you think about the um, advent of the kind of well-being culture and policies and procedures around well-being at work that's now started to support sleep being a kind of an aspect of that too mm. so that that's really helped so I think there've been a, a lot of things happening almost in parallel which has created a perfect storm which has meant that this has started to be talked about now of course that's against a backdrop of absolutely as you say this kind of tendency for people People to think that uh, working long hours is a sign of being very productive it's a sign of being indispensable at work and it's quite difficult then to admit that perhaps you're not sleeping well because that's a sign of weakness um, and then that's obviously a, a cultural uh, difficulty that, that people need to tackle but I do think that we're now at a point where organizations are starting to accept that this is potentially an issue and not just an issue for the well-being of their employees but also a business issue it can have an impact on business and I think that's fantastic we're at that stage but I still think we've got a long way to go. So I feel that sort of my journey isn't yet finished because what we now need to do is is ride that wave. We have to now take this enthusiasm and this belief that this is really interesting and really important for businesses and think then about not just about raising awareness, because I think we're there with that, mm. but it's now then about behaviour change, sustainable behaviour change. So if these people in organisations do have an issue and it is impacting their lives, how can we actually support people to actually make a change and make that sustainable so it's not about just doing something different and then forgetting about it after a few weeks but actually how do we make that part of their everyday life so that things can actually change for the better I don't think we're there yet on that aspect mm. now a, a, a question spontaneously came to my mind I, I mean I find this an absolutely fascinating topic but somehow uh, I just wanted to quickly ask you do you see um, a difference between men and women in this aspect and and I'm also particularly curious because obviously when you're a new parent especially a new mom so I, I see from women returning to the labor market returning to work that that there's definitely already um, an issue there where uh, I think they don't get enough sleep and and this is somehow not accommodated they're they're still trying to fit back into this perfect worker mold but do you see a difference between how men and women address this issue yeah absolutely so I think there are a number of things there so firstly my research hasn't specifically looked at gender issues my I'm more interested at the moment although gender is very important but I've been focusing on different levels in organizations so seniority so senior leaders mm -hmm. versus more junior individuals and also age effects uh, so I haven't specifically focused on gender but if you look at the research exactly as you've said I think there are a couple of things to to focus on firstly there there is some really high quality research out there that says there are differences 
fundamentally between men and women. So even if you take childbearing and child rearing out of the picture, there are differences between mm. the type of sleep that men and women get, the, the, the amount and the quality of their sleep. They're not huge differences within a, a regularly healthy adult, but there are differences and, and we need to acknowledge that. I think then the second thing on top of that is that, yes, I think that the, the real difference between the genders is at two particular points of life for a woman, and that is at pregnancy and in menopause. So there are quite significant changes or can be significant changes um, in a woman's sleep, particularly quality, when they're pregnant and also when they're going through the menopause. Yeah. So I think that's that's the second layer. And then on top of that, of course, is generally the woman, and not always, of course, but generally the woman is taking the the larger portion of the childcare responsibilities, maybe getting up more frequently in the night, may be responsible for the child during the day too. Uh, but that, of course, is not um, specific to women. It's specific to the child carer, which may be a man as well. So if, if, it, was a, if it was a male taking responsibility, they would be equally impacted. So I think there are sort of three layers there. There are kind of genetic or fundamental physiological differences between men and women. Then on top of that, there are the differences between women in two key stages of their lives. And then the third layer on top of that is the impact on the caregiver of the children. Great. And, and I, I'm so um, thankful that you mentioned menopause because I think that's another big taboo <laughs> where that we don't address at the workplace. And I was so happy once I participated in an event where uh, one of the UK um, uh, trade unions, actually, uh, wor uh, worker unions, uh, were addressing this and having specific programs and awareness raising programs within their workforce and within the managers. So um, coming maybe now um, again back to organizations, and you mentioned that you looked at um, the differences in, in seniori seniority. I cannot hear <laughs> seniority. Um, so so how did you um, structure your research or, or how did you approach then the different levels of of, I guess, where people were uh, in their careers? Okay, so we came at this because I was really interested in, there's, there's lots of media coverage and and sort of uh, hype around the fact that, you know, very senior leaders are working longer and harder mm -hmm. and they're struggling with, with poor sleep and, and various other things like, like stress and mental illness. And absolutely, there is no doubt that's the case. But what I was interested in was, was this an aspect of leadership? Was it just related to leadership or were these aspects of poor sleep equally visible in other people in lower areas of the organization? So was this just something that if you became a leader, you almost had to accept that your sleep mm -hmm. was going to suffer and, and those kind of things? Or actually, was it happening all the way through the organization? So what I was really interested in is, is, is there a difference in the amount of sleep that very senior leaders get and the quality of that sleep compared to junior individuals? And then secondly, um, how does that show up for these people? So what is the impact of this poor sleep within their organizational life, their physical life and their social life. Um, so it was a, a, a big questionnaire that we did. It was self-reported. And of course, that's always problematic because you're not necessarily perfectly accurate at knowing how much sleep you get. But that's one of the kind of pragmatic aspects of researching sleep in organizations. So we had over a thousand responses. 
from very senior individuals, chief executives, managing directors, through to people with no line management responsibility. And what was really interesting is was we fundamentally found that those in very senior positions had virtually no difference in the amount of sleep that they were getting to those more junior. The difference was actually only, only nine minutes. So mm. in practical terms, that's no difference at all. So they were getting about the same amount of sleep. They weren't getting enough. It was about six and a half hours, which isn't really enough. You should be kind of aiming for about seven on average. So it was certainly not super healthy sleep, but there was no difference between the leaders and the junior people. And I think that's a really important point for organizations to bear in mind. This isn't just about educating leaders on well-being. This is educating the entire organization. And the second thing that we found, which I also think is super interesting, is that the junior individuals, the people with lower uh, middle management and, and below, those with no line management responsibility, those were the people that were reporting more impact of that poor sleep. So physical, social and emotional and cognitive impact. Now, what's interesting is they weren't having any less sleep than the leaders, yet they were reporting more of an impact. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, suggests one of a number of things. It could be that leaders genuinely cope better with poor sleep. That's a possibility. There are individual differences coping. It could be that people have been promoted into a leadership position because they are less affected by poor sleep. Or it could be that leaders are not prepared to admit how badly it is affecting them because they perhaps think, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, they perhaps think it's not acceptable to admit that their performance is suffering because of poor sleep. So maybe they're a little bit politically savvy and think, actually, I probably shouldn't admit this. And the fourth possibility, which I think is really interesting, is that the only reason that we know that these things are happening to us and it's impacting us is by being self-aware. And we become self-aware by getting lots of feedback and talking to other people. And maybe these very senior leaders aren't able to do that because we've become more senior in organizations. People are able to speak the truth to us less and less because it's quite a risk to tell somebody who's very senior the truth perhaps about their behavior. So maybe the quality of their feedback is so poor that they're not able to build their self-awareness around how badly their poor sleep is actually affecting them in the workforce. So we've yet to tease out what the, the, the causes of that difference, but I think it's a really interesting one. Super interesting and made me think that perhaps it's not by chance that those senior leaders have become senior leaders because maybe they have had this kind of real entrepreneurial career drive you know, that makes you get up at five in the morning and gets you, you, you when you look at time diaries of successful people and, and, and you know, see how, how they, ha they are managing, you know, they, I think something comes back over and over that they get up very early, that they exercise, they're very disciplined about their time, they manage their time in a way that they don't watch endless, you know, hours on Netflix, but <laughs> would read a book or so. So I do think that there's probably something about being really driven and, and, and your mind gets going early, you're up and but also maybe something about then even structuring your days in a way that, okay, now it's time for sleep and somehow. So my question is, can can somebody become quite effective in managing their time also in terms of, okay, this is now my rest time and I'm just going to shut off now and maybe get get this way a better quality sleep yeah, absolutely i mean i think i think there are a number of things that you've pointed out and picked up on there that are really important i mean there are 
general physiological or genetic uh, differences between people's ability to cope with poor sleep. So some people just can cope better than others. So it might be that that just makes you a better leader or you makes you a more effective leader because you're just able to cope more effectively with poor sleep. And of course, coping mechanisms are brilliant. So maybe these leaders are able to cope more effectively. I think the other thing that happens when you become more in a leadership position is that you have a lot more autonomy over your time. So, of course, you know, if you're absolutely exhausted on a Thursday afternoon, you do, I mean, not a lot of people do it, but you do have the ability or the choice to go home early or take a walk or have a a 10 minute coffee break. More junior people might not have that level of autonomy. So they're able to control their environment in a way that might make it more effective for them to cope with poor sleep. But I think the other thing that you picked up on is really important. It's this drive, it's this passion, it's this motivation. We talk a lot about work-life balance and I don't actually think it's about balance because that assumes it's 50% work and 50% mm. life. Yes. That, that's, that's not what it's all about. And it also makes it sound like work is not a part of life. And of course, work is a, such a fundamental part of who we are. So I think it's not about balance. It's about choice. And I think that's why some individuals are really able to work long, work hard, entrepreneurs work round the, round the clock because they are making an active choice about something they're passionate about. And I think often that's less stressful and has less an effect than if you're doing something that you feel you have no choice over. So you're in a job that you feel that you have to be doing because you need to, to pay the bills. So I think that's a choice is very, very important. Having said that, We are, at the end of the day, physiological beings. We have our limitations. And I think the danger is when we are very passionate and very motivated, we stop listening to our bodies. Mm. So I think there is definitely something about motivation. I think that's really important. And that often allows us to push that little bit further, that little bit harder. The danger of that, the flip side or the dark side, is that sometimes we then forget to listen to our bodies. And that's really what Arianna Huffington's key message was, is that, you know, I have no doubt she's super passionate about what she does. But at the end of the day, she fell over, literally because because of poor sleep and I think that's the danger is that if we are so focused and so motivated sometimes we actually forget to, to, to remember that we are all finite we have finite energy resources and we need to look after ourselves but you can you can be absolutely train yourself I think the best way to think about it is to treat yourself like a small child. Mm. When we're trying to train children to get really good sleep, we take them to bed at the same time, we have the same wind-down routine, we get them up at the same time every morning. And then as an adult, we seem to forget that. We seem to think that's not important, whereas it's absolutely critical. If you train yourself to have the same wind-down routine every night, if you train yourself to go to bed at the same time every night, if you train yourself to get up at the same time every morning, that will really help the quality and quantity of your sleep because your body has those cues then to know this is time to fall asleep this is time to wake up so I guess a really key message is think of yourself as a a two-year-old or a one-year-old that you're trying to treat to get to get some really good sleep (laughs) that's great (laughs) so within an organizational context um, whose role is it to to bring this up can have you, in your experience, is, does it vary? Does it, is it sometimes the line manager, sometimes the CEO or HR? Or who, who could come with, um, you know, opening this conversation and, and creating some kind of enabling environment for, for the employees and everybody to discuss or, you know, to, to be more open and accepting uh, about these issues? 
I think that's a brilliant question. And, you know, I spend a lot of time working with all of those different groups. So often I'll, I'll speak to a group of HR or L&D directors, then it'll be at the board level, then it might, might be general employees or health and safety executives. Uh, so I've, I've, I've talked to all of those groups. And I, I think the answer is that my feeling, my personal feeling is that it's everybody's responsibility. Mm. And I think people will have then different responsibilities within that so ultimately people who might be responsible for policy around this so you know does your organization have a sleep policy that might be people such as health and safety or HR who are responsible for policy I think then there's an aspect around general well-being and welfare of employees and I think that then is the line managers responsibility and then I think that everybody as an individual has responsibility for looking after themselves so I think that then comes down to the employee responsibility and of course, then it all becomes blurred around the lines of who's ultimate should take responsibility at the end of the day. And of course, it has to be the individual. But I do think there's a policy and procedure and welfare and well-being aspect that organisations need to take responsibility for. Hmm, great. Um, time is unfortunately always running way too quickly uh, on the on the podcast recording. So um, before we go to our last question, may I ask you, Vicky, to tell listeners where they can find you, find your work, uh, or maybe get in touch with you? Certainly, absolutely. There's probably two two easy ways of doing that. The first one is to go on to the Ashridge Executive Education website. So if you just type into a search engine, Ashridge Executive Education, that will bring you to the website, and then you'll be able to find me under the faculty and research pages there. Uh, it's Vicky Culpin, which is Vicky, V-I-C-K-I, and that's Culpin, C-U-L-P-I-N. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, uh, my email address is on the website, but of course, you're also free to email me Mike, directly. So my uh, email address is Vicky, again, V-I-C-K-I dot Culpin, C-U-L-P-I-N. And that's at Ashridge dot Hult dot E-D-U. That's Ashridge dot Hult dot E-D-U. Wonderful. And of course, you will be the keynote speaker on Thursday, the 20th of October, um, 2016 at 12 o'clock at uh, the Zukunft Personal HRM Expo in Cologne. So now coming to the last question, which is always the same here, but somehow I feel that this time it's even more pertinent. If I could ask you, Vicky, to give an advice to a CEO to start making a difference in the well-being of his or her employees, where should they start? I think I have one piece of advice to them, actually, and, and I think that is you need to be the change that you want to observe. So as a CEO, they need to make the changes themselves that they want to see in the organization. Because at the end of the day, if a chief executive is espousing the values of well-being and saying this is fundamental to the culture of our organization and it really matters and sleep is so important, and yet they're sending emails at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., or they're the ones still in the office at midnight, then that sets the cultural tone of the organization. So people look to that individual and think, well, no, they've got, they're very senior, I respect them hugely, and that's their behavior. They're still working at midnight. They're sending emails at two o'clock in the morning. That is the behavior I need to emulate in order mm. to get to that position. So for me, and it's a hard one, I, I, I don't doubt this for a second, it's very, very difficult to do, but for me, it is fundamental that at a senior level in the organization, you need to be and act the change that you want to see within the organization. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I mean, this is great. I love the way you 
framed it, you know, to set the cultural tone of the organization. Beautifully said. Thank you so much, Vicky, for taking the time and coming on the podcast. And I wish you the best of success in your future research. Thank you. My absolute pleasure.